Um, I don't know about you, but my morning has officially been made by the fact that um, it turns out that it is a thing that pumpkin at vineyardrichmond.com exists in the world. Like, I, I find that pretty exciting. Um, I, I, I go to a place once a week where um, I'm not allowed to say the name of the place, but it's named after a cosmic entity. And as you buy your coffee there, they give you other cosmic entities that you can then go and redeem. And I redeem mine on preaching days for a big old pumpkin spice latte. And uh, so hearing pumpkin at Vineyard Richmond made me really, really excited. Um, well, as, as Pastor Joe mentioned, my name is Jeff. I'm the assistant pastor here. What that means is that I kind of work with a little bit of everything. Uh, I work with the team that does our student ministries from middle school to high school. I oversee that team. Sometimes I kind of get my feet wet. Right now, my feet are a little bit wet with that, and that's fun. And I also work with the college students and young adults around here, uh, and, and that's a good thing. And then generally, if Joe ever says, hey, I want you to come and preach, I will come and preach and do it gladly because um, it's fun and I enjoy it. But we're back in Nehemiah, as Pastor Joe mentioned. This is week five, um, and today we're going to find ourselves in chapter four. But I hope that you have been enjoying going through this series as much as I have. Uh, I think some of us are kind of familiar with Nehemiah to a certain extent. Maybe it's not a place that you've spent a whole lot of time in, but you might know there's some business about building a wall, something about leadership, something about organization, rallying the troops, and all that kind of stuff. But it's been especially fun to, to really spend some time there, and, and even in our small groups as well, uh, just to kind of look at it, find out what's there, find out what it is that we can apply from that. So before we get into the text, let's just take a second. We're going to recap very, very quickly where we've been so far uh, in the book of Nehemiah. So at the beginning of Nehemiah, Nehemiah hears news that the walls of Jerusalem are broken down, its gates are in ruin, um, everything like that. Then Nehemiah proceeds to pray to God about what's going on. He repents for his sins and the sins of his ancestors. He asks God to give him favor with the king. Then he talks to the king. The king gives him safe passage and supplies to go and build the wall. And then, as we talked about last week, Nehemiah kind of rallies the people together and starts the building process. And that brings us here to Nehemiah chapter 4. And it's going to be a big, a big section of text today. So just bear with it for a second. We're going to read the entire chapter. Do you have that in, in, in you this morning? We're going to read the entire chapter. I would encourage you to get your Bible or your Bible app out. But of course, we always put it up on the screen so that you can follow along. So Nehemiah chapter 4, this is what it says. Now, when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to, the plunder, to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sambalot and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they plotted, and they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. 
And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me, and I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. We're almost done, okay? So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes, each kept his weapon at his right hand. Okay, we'll take a deep breath. There we go. That was a lot. But let's just kind of recap it and catch our, catch our breath, catch up with what's going on here. So As Nehemiah 4 begins, Nehemiah mentions our old friends who we met earlier in the story. He he talks about Sambalot and Tobiah, and they are Horonites and Ammonites respectively. He mentions they're angry, and, and they jeered at the Jews, they made fun of them, but also they ended up making plans to attack them and to cause confusion. Now, what we need to understand about those two people and about those two people groups were that the Horonites and the Ammonites were, were, were people groups that were displaced when, when the Israelites moved into the promised land. And so they have a long-standing historical beef with the Israelites. It's been around for a while. It's about land. It's about being displaced. And it's about wanting something that once belonged to them. So that you have here, the, the players that we have right here are, are, the, are the enemies, the opponents to the work. So Nehemiah proceeds to pray, and he lays it all out there before God. And then, so we built the wall. And I don't know about you, but as I read that, I think that's kind of funny. He's going on. He's saying all these things that people want to do. He's saying all these ways that people are making fun of them and mocking them and jeering them and wanting to attack them. So anyway, we built the wall and we move forward with that. But then as the work progresses, the opponents get more and more angry. And we hear, uh, we hear about them mocking, but now it's getting serious. Now they actually plan to go and to attack and to actually kill the people. But the interesting thing, though, is that all the talk that we get about defending, all the talk that we get about weapons and armor and all that kind of stuff, we don't get the battle scenes. And I don't know that this is for sure what this means, but that kind of makes me think that they may not have actually happened, right? It's almost as though the opponents never thought that the Israelites would catch wind of the fact that people were coming against them. They just assumed they could come and and kill them and take it all over and, and all that. So when they found out that the Israelites were ready for them, they turned around and, and failed to attack. All, all I know is that Nehemiah doesn't tell us, okay, we fought them from this point to this point. We drove them back as far as this point. We don't get a death toll and we don't hear that X amount of our people died and we killed this many thousand of their people. We don't get any of that. We just get 
the tactics. We just get what Nehemiah sets up. And it's, it's interesting because he shows himself really to be quite the tactician. And if you think about it, he was in the throne room of the king. He was around the king. He probably heard a lot of plotting and planning and, and, and talking about war and battle and all the rest of it. And so then he kind of gets an idea of how he needs to organize his people. And, and the tactics are pretty smart, honestly, if you think about it. He, he mentions they protect the low open places of the wall, okay? So that's a pretty common tactic where effectively how it works is you, you mitigate the numerical advantage that your opponent has against you because if they're all coming to one small, narrow place where you can set up, then they can't all fit through there. They have to go one wave at a time and it kind of mitigates the, 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 the advantage or the numbers that they might have. And then Nehemiah splits his manpower up. Half the people are building. Half of them are holding uh, weapons and armor. Some of them, Nehemiah writes, carry burdens with one hand and a weapon with the other. And I don't know about you. I'm this guy, okay? But I'm, I'm that guy and I read that. And I'm like, really? Like, is that meant to be taken literally? Because, you know, again, this is just the way my brain works. If the enemy is that immediate, then you probably shouldn't be carrying stuff. But, but if, you, if you have a little bit of time to react, then you can kind of have your weapon at your side and you can get it out when you need to. I don't know. I'm just speculating because Nehemiah actually does specify in other places that some people had their weapon at their side. So I don't know. But the point is, they were ready to fight. At any given moment, they are set up, they are prepared to fight. They rotate building and guarding and resting. Okay, and then if we fast forward, we're going to skip past chapter 5, and we're going to skip through the first half or so of chapter 6, and we get to Nehemiah 6, 15. And I love this, and it just says, So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul in 52 days. Boom. Wall done. What's the book of Nehemiah about? Is it about building a wall? Yes, partially. But if you think about it, okay, there, there are 13 chapters in Nehemiah. So after Nehemiah says the wall is done, we proceed to have chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. Okay, there are more chapters after the wall is built than there are leading up to the wall being built, which tells us that, the, which tells us that there is more of the story yet to be told. So anyway, we have this sermon series, we have this small group study broken into eight sections, and because we're Christians, we've named them uh, alliteratively so that you can remember them better. Okay, and this week is called Resist. So as we look at the story, as we look at this particular chapter in the segment of Nehemiah's story, we see a few different elements of what it took for Nehemiah and the Jews to resist the opposition to the work, and then there are some things that you and I can be mindful of as well. So number one, if you're taking notes, number one, be aware of the enemy. Okay, for Nehemiah, he was made aware of people who were coming against them and their work. He was aware that there was opposition. Okay, he didn't ignore it. He didn't panic. He didn't bury his head in the sand. He didn't treat the project with blind optimism, enthusiasm, and say, no, it's not a big deal. It's not a problem at all. He simply took the opposition into account while he was making the plan. He factored in the fact that he had opponents. And this meant that, that instead of focusing all of their energy on building, they had to split the job up. They had to have some people stand guard, they had to have some people carry a weapon and a burden, and they had some people keep their weapons ready as they built. This meant they had to have a strategy and a plan for them to execute if and when it came to that. And for us, you and I may not have a Sanballat and Tobiah in the purest sense, okay? Maybe you do, I don't know. But, but we don't have people that are plotting against us trying to actually literally kill us, or at least hopefully most of us don't, okay? But we do have one enemy in common, 
the devil, Satan, the one whose goal it is to kill and to steal and to destroy us. And as we're moving about our lives as people following Jesus, we do well to remember that we have an enemy. And your enemy would like you to be unaware of his presence and of his reality. Because if you're unaware, then you're an easy target. Okay? The enemy, Peter tells us in 1 Peter uh, chapter 5, prowls around like a roaring lion. He is seeking someone to devour. And there is no one easier to devour than someone who is unaware and someone who is isolated and out on their own. See, if Satan can get you to ignore things, if he can get you to stop thinking about the things of God, then you will fail to see what God can do in those situations. If you ignore the fact that there's a fight, then you'll miss out on the fact that there's a victory. If you ignore the, the factor of sin, then you, then you ignore and you miss out on the reality of God's grace and mercy in your life. If you ignore temptation and say it's not a big deal, then you miss out on resurrection power to live a righteous life. If you ignore the nudges of the Holy Spirit in those moments and places where he's telling you, I want you to go do this. I want you to go speak to this person. I want you to pray for this person. If you ignore that, then you miss out on the joy of obedience and what happens when you say, Lord, what do you want to do through me and in me today? If you don't pray, if you're not asking God for things to happen, then you're not going to see him do anything because you're not looking. Paul told the Ephesians, and by extension us, that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. In other words, the enemy isn't people. And additionally, everything is spiritual at some point and to some degree. Some people make bad decisions. It's true. But at the same time, they also have an enemy who wants to destroy them, an enemy who is a real, living, spiritual being, just like we believe that God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, the Godhead three in one, we believe that God is a real, living, spiritual being. Your enemy is also a real, living, spiritual being who wants to do things and wants to act in the world we live in. Some people have selfish motives, but they also have an enemy who wants to use them as a tool to discourage and to step over and to harm and abuse as many people as he can get them to do and also to destroy themselves in the process. Some people have real physical and mental uh, problems and conditions, and please don't hear me downplay the reality of those things, but they also have an enemy who wants to keep them down. And often there is a, there is a real and spiritual component to these things. The enemy uses things in our lives, whether that's a word that was spoken to us years and years ago, if it's a mistake that you made, if it's an offense that someone committed against you, if it's abuse, if it's harm, trauma, etc. He uses those things strategically against you, and they become a source of continual pain and fear and shame and guilt, and those things are not from God. Those things keep you from moving forward, and that is exactly what your enemy wants. So you and I have to be aware of the fact that there is an enemy. Ignoring it doesn't make it better. In fact, it makes it worse. But here's number two. Don't sweat the enemy. Okay, for Nehemiah, I love as you read through the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah leaves the enemies in God's hand. He, he, he doesn't make a big deal about it. He doesn't panic about the enemy. There's one prayer where he kind of asks God to effectively avenge the, the, the Jews for the, their enemies. But Largely, he just kind of leaves it to God. Check this out. In, in, in Nehemiah 4.9, he says, We prayed to our God, and we set a guard as a protection against them day and night. We prayed, we did something about it, then we moved on. Okay? In, in, in chapter 4, verse 15, he says, When our enemies heard that it was known to us, 
and that God had frustrated their plan, we returned to the wall, each to his work. I love that Nehemiah doesn't say, well, actually, it turns out that my tactics were perfect and we set up this and blah, 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 blah. He just says God frustrated their plan. He doesn't take the credit for it. He doesn't even credit his people. He said God frustrated their plan and we continued in our work. And then in in chapter 4, verse 20, he says, in the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. Do you realize this morning that God is a God who fights for his people? You see this time and time again throughout the Old Testament. Just read the book of Exodus and you will see God coming through time and time and time again. When God wants to do something, he will see to it that it's done. And if you weren't here last week, Pastor Joe said this and it's stuck with me ever since. He's going to do it and the the choice is up to us. Is he going to do it with us or is he going to do it without us? Because he's going to do it. So on the opposite end of being unaware of an enemy is a sense of hyper-awareness where everything is super, super spiritual and beside being just a little bit annoying, okay, it also has the potential to be uh, completely paralyzing, okay? Let me, let me put it to you this way. Let me use an illustration. Uh, it's officially October. Pumpkin spice is legal within the walls of this church now. Um, hallelujah, right? But it's also spooky season. And I know that right here, we're going to kind of split the crowd, right? Like some of you are like, I don't understand why people are into that stuff. It's crazy. It's weird. It's bad. I don't like it. Um, And then others of us are like, I I know somebody who's like watching a scary movie every day this month. And it's like, okay, cool. But but here's the deal. When you watch a scary movie, somehow, like, it it makes you hyper aware in your own house, right? Like, you can hear a noise, and all of a sudden, like, there might be somebody in your garage, or there might be something plaguing your house, or something like that. Or if you open a door, there might be something behind there. I remember when I was in uh, college, I watched the movie Shaun of the Dead, and I always checked the shower just to see if there was a zombie hanging out in my shower, okay? It makes you hyper aware, but the reality is, you're just as safe as if you'd watch Toy Story, or like Finding Nemo or something like that, right? It's just, it kind of puts you into a different headspace and it, it makes you hyper-aware. But the hyper-awareness doesn't help, okay? You have an enemy. Don't sweat him by giving him more time and attention than he deserves. Leave the enemy to God because the enemy was already disarmed. And we have to understand that doesn't mean that he's, he's a dog without a bite, but colloquially speaking, it means that there's a cure to the bite. It means that, that, that things like sickness and demonic influence and depression and crushing shame and guilt and all those things, they're real, but they are not final and they do not have a hold on you. It means, as the song says, that no power of hell and no scheme of man can ever, ever pluck you from his hand because God triumphs over these things in Jesus Christ. God made a mockery of these things in Jesus Christ. And God gives you and I authority over these things in Jesus Christ. And so because of that, we don't have to worry. We can stand somewhere in between being unaware of the fact that we have an enemy and somewhere in between cowering in fear of the enemy because we don't have to do that, but we do need to be aware. We have an enemy who's still active and is trying to keep as many people out of the kingdom as possible, but we gear up with the weapons and the armor that Paul puts out in Ephesians and we bring the kingdom to people. We move the kingdom forward. We advance it. We pray for the sick. We cast out demons. We feed the poor. You realize that's kingdom work. When we talk about the Hope Food Pantry right here, when we talk about feeding people, that is kingdom work. That is bringing the kingdom of light and and, and going against the kingdom of darkness. And that is important work. That's the mission that Jesus was on. And that's the mission that he invites us on. 
We proclaim the kingdom of God, and that is, that is a, a much bigger deal. It's a much bigger concept, a much bigger idea than just going to church on Sunday and cleaning up your behavior a little bit and being a good person. It is more than that. Maybe a, maybe a good question for us to ask is, what is God doing? But not just, what do you want to say to me, Lord? Maybe a better question is, Lord, what do you want me to go and say to that person? What do you want to say to them, and how can you use me to go and do that? So here's the deal. The enemy is defeated. Don't sweat him. Don't give him more attention than he deserves. Move forward. And then number three, it takes a community. For Nehemiah, Nehemiah did not build the wall on his own. You realize that, right? He had his heart broken for the city. He he, he had a vision of what the wall was going to look like. He came up with the plan. But a key part of the plan was that the plan necessitated some bodies. Right? He needed some people to be there. He needed people to, to build in one place or another. He needed people to stand guard. He needed people to carry, to, to, to build, to rest, to rally. He needed people to tip him off to the scheme of the enemy. And in the same way, you and I need each other. We really, really do. That's why small groups are so important. That's why it's important that we laugh together, we cry together, we play together, we fight together, and we also fight for each other. That's why it's important that you are here and that you converse out in the commons in between and, and before and after services. That's important. As someone who uh, now by, by God's providence and, and, and his, his grace on my life, I, I finally get to be in vocational ministry. It's something I wanted to do for a number of years. But I'm, I'm always reminded and humbled by the fact that Sunday morning's not what it's all about. Okay, especially getting to stand up here on this stage and teach. It's not the most important thing. It's really not. When I was younger, I thought it was. I thought that everything rode like on me giving the most concise and articulate and beautiful and thought-provoking and, and, and you know, mind-blowing. I had, to, I had to just make you think. And, and, you know, I thought that that was what I had to do. I thought that that was the most important part of your spiritual life throughout the week, but it's really not. Paul puts it this way to the Corinthians. Paul planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Here's the deal. It takes a team. It takes community. Spiritual formation takes place in the everyday. The stuff you do every single day, the way you wake up, the way you spend your morning, the way you talk to your wife, the way you talk to your kids, the way you interact with your coworkers, the way that you do the things that you do, that is when you are formed spiritually into the person that God wants you to be. People don't often come to faith because someone stood on a stage and said something really smart and really beautiful. A lot of times people come to faith because they will point to a number of things that they saw along the way. The fact that they were greeted as they walked in the door of a church. The fact that their neighbor mowed their lawn and invited them to church. The fact that their one coworker didn't do all the same things or talk in the same way or laugh at the same jokes or anything like that. They, they looked different and then somewhere later on down the line they found out what that person was all about and what, that, what they believed, and it verified what they said that they believed. And believe it or not, you, as the hands and feet of Jesus, as, as someone who bears the name of Jesus and takes him into your community, you are shaping the way that people around you perceive Christianity. Your words, your action, your attitude, they all matter. You are the hands and feet of Jesus, whether you like it or not, and whether you're doing a good job of it or not. It's the truth. 
And you and I need other people to be the hands and feet of Jesus to us. Just like the Jews needed some people to work and some people to stand guard, we need each other. Certain jobs, certain giftings, certain abilities, all that sort of things they're not more important than others. Everyone gets to play. Scripture promises that when we resist the devil, he will flee from us. So how do we resist? I think this particular chapter of Nehemiah gives us some hints. Okay? We don't ignore the enemy. We don't freak out about the enemy. And we do it together. We need each other. This week, as I was thinking about how to wrap this up, I was going to stop there. But then I was in the shower on Thursday afternoon. Not that you need to know that. But I was thinking about this message. And I was thinking about how Jesus, on the road to Emmaus, he was walking with a couple of disciples. And he proceeded after they finally, you know, came to the understanding that it was Jesus, post-resurrection. It says he, he showed them all the things in the law and the prophet pertaining to him. In other words, how we come to understand that is that everything in the Old Testament points in some way or another to Jesus Christ. And I thought about this story of Nehemiah, and I realized it's not really a story about you and me. It's really not. I mean, few of us are cupbearer to the king. Few of us have such a grand calling on our lives that we want to rebuild the walls of a city. Okay? Don't, don't hear me say that you can't relate to this story, because you can. But ultimately, at the end of the day, this is a story about Jesus. Because Jesus is a lot more like Nehemiah than you and I are. The reality is that you and I, we're a little bit more like the rubble. <laughs> we're a little bit more like those broken down walls. Because Jesus, much like Nehemiah, saw the state of the place that he loved. He saw the state that it was in. He saw what sin and death did to us as people his own image bearers, the people that he created to enjoy himself as much as he enjoys himself, the people that he created to bear his image in the world. He saw the state that we were in and he was stirred to action. And in, in a way that kind of goes above my head, he knew about it ahead of time and he planned on it, but he still went and did it. And Jesus, much like Nehemiah, left a position in the throne room to come all this way to live among the rubble. Jesus walked this ball of dirt that we call home for now, but not forever. And he lived with sinful people like you and me who eventually put him to death. Jesus, like Nehemiah, had an enemy who believed, like Tobiah and Senbalat did, that they had a claim to the, to the land. Because Satan believes that he has a claim on you and on me. But Jesus, through what he did, declares, much like Nehemiah did, you don't have a claim here. This place is not yours. These people are not yours. Jesus, like Nehemiah, finished the work on the cross, just like Nehemiah said. So we built the wall and the wall was finished. But just like in the book of Nehemiah that we see, there's still story left to tell. There's still story left to be, to, 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 to be written. And so Jesus, also like Nehemiah, uses people to be his hands and his feet. We, 
get to participate in the kingdom work of restoring all things. The thing that God is trying to do to move the kingdom forward, to take back what the kingdom of darkness has stolen from him and also from you and me. He invites us to be a part of that, to heal the sick, to cast out demons, to feed the poor and to clothe the naked. Ultimately, Jesus came to restore, to reunite us to God and to rebuild the broken places in our lives. And that is the good news of Nehemiah. And I want to encourage you in that. Because of him, because of what Jesus has already done, the victory he's already accomplished on our behalf, we can resist the enemy. We don't sweat him. We come together in community, just like Nehemiah said, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally together. We rally together on days like today because we need each other. All you have to do is believe that Jesus is who he said he was and he did what he said he did. And then out of that, you obey. Let's pray. God, we come before you this morning. We want to thank you for this story. We want to thank you that Jesus is our Nehemiah, that Jesus came to rebuild, to restore, and, 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 and to, to, to rebuild the broken places in our lives. Thank you, God, that you did not leave us in our sin, but you came and you did something about it. And we thank you for that. And Father, this morning, we want to acknowledge the fact that we have an enemy. God, it makes it difficult to live life in, in this world that we live in because there are people around us that are broken. There are people around us that, that come against us, that hurt us, that harm us. But God, we don't want to sweat the enemy. We want to live in the reality of the victory that Jesus purchased for us on the cross at Calvary. And so, Father, we just invite you and we ask you to come and help us. Holy Spirit, fill us with your wisdom, fill us with your grace, fill us with your mercy, and fill us with your peace as we aim to be a kingdom people that lives out the kingdom of God in our community. God, use us as your vessels to move the kingdom of God forward, to take back the things that the enemy has stolen, and to see things and to see people restored and to see people's lives rebuilt. Thank you for your love, God. Thank you for what you accomplished for us on the cross. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, we're going to sing one final song, so I want to go ahead and encourage you to stand up to your feet. These people who are up here are here to pray with and to pray for you. No matter what it's about, I want to encourage you not to miss the opportunity to come and to have someone pray for you.